0: Hi and welcome to Blissful Spinster! This week's guest is cinematographer David Bolin. David lives in Los Angeles and is a highly sought after cinematographer with numerous narrative feature films, television projects, and documentaries under his belt. David's work includes 2020's Sundance documentary Darling, Some Kind of Heaven, his feature film, Sony, which premiered at the 2018 Venice International Film Festival, and Beast, which was in competition at the 2018 South by Southwest Film Festival and won the International Episodic Grand Jury Prize. David's work hasn't just made the rounds on the festival circuit. It's also reached the Academy Awards. His stunning cinematography in the New York op-doc A Concerto is a Conversation was part of the reason this fantastic short was nominated for Best Short Documentary at the 92nd Academy Awards. Most recently, his feature film Gone in the Night, which was formerly called The Cow and stars Winona Ryder, premiered at the 2022 South by Southwest Film Festival and amazingly secured distribution with Vertical Entertainment. It can currently be streamed on Amazon. But David is not just a talented cinematographer. He's also a wonderful friend and support supportive filmmaker. He and I met a few years ago on the set of a true crime documentary series we were both working on, and we've been cheering each other on ever since. I'm so happy to bring you our wonderful conversation. We chat about the DP director relationship, how tapping into our own vulnerabilities leads to making the best kinds of films, and the importance of making everyone, from the PA to the producer, feel seen on set. So however you found this podcast, thank you for tuning in and please enjoy this week's episode. Hey David, how are you doing?
1: Hello, I'm doing well. How are you?
0: I'm pretty good. It's been a while.
1: It's been a couple years. It's yeah. been a couple years. It's crazy.
0: You've exploded.
1: <laughs> exploded with anxiety.
0: <laughs> well, thank you for agreeing to do my podcast.
1: Yeah, no, I always love, I think it's really fun to talk, just talk about the industry and what, what we're up to and. It's cool to connect again.
0: Can we start at the beginning and just find out what your journey was like first? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I'm a Canadian, which is always, people are intrigued. They're like, oh, like people from Canada exist. and. Do things. So I grew up in in Toronto, Canada, and which was a really beautiful and wonderful and diverse place to grow up. And I was really, really lucky to have really nurturing parents who loved film. And I always remember my dad used to every Tuesday, there's like a cheap deal at Kentucky Fried Chicken called Toonie Tuesday. (laughs) And you could get a meal for a Toonie, which is $2 in Canada. It's like a little coin. We'd go get like a Toonie Tuesday, and then we'd go to to a movie theater, and, and he'd, um, you take me to films that I probably had no right seeing as like a 10-year-old. you would take me to these really art films and adult, just not adult films, but pretty R-rated movies where I was just like, what? This is crazy. I remember seeing like Babel at really young and being like, wow, this is an incredible piece of filmmaking. I remember seeing it in the theater and just being like blown away. Oh my God, I can't believe someone made this. So I was really fortunate in that sense. And and my mom, on my mom's side, she, she was the, more of the kind of hands-on person. Like she was the one... She gave me my first camera and, you know, always encouraged me to make things and spend my summers like making little movies with my friends. And I remember we tried to like recreate Lord of the Rings with our little like DV cameras and all of us dressing up as different characters going around in the woods and making it. So I definitely had like a childhood just filmed full with movie memories. And yeah, so it was wonderful. And then I think as I got a bit older, my dad he served as a, like a member of the board on this documentary film festival called Hot Docs, which I is a wonderful film festival in in Toronto that really is like this amazing thing where people in downtown Toronto are like lining up to see documentaries. So I'd get this pass and I would just bop around on my own and just watch documentaries all day and see the most obscure things, and I just loved it. I just that's where I was like, wow, like documentary, like that's is also pretty interesting. Like and it's interesting that these films can actually have like a message behind them and a purpose. And so that was fascinating to me as well. And so all these things I think have played a role in my adult career. But but yeah, that's how I started my, my interest. Yeah.
0: That's super interesting. Because what I've found is 'Cause I listen to a lot of podcasts like I think you do too, with different filmmakers and stuff. Yeah. And it's interesting to me that when I listen to a lot of the older cinematographers, like we were just yeah. earlier talking about Deacons, but some of the other ones.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: They had this start with documentary as well as, as scripted or or narrative. Yeah. And I do wonder because there always seemed to be this separation between the narrative and the doc. Yeah. In in your generation or mine, you know. And it, it's interesting that you have this background that sounds closer to the old school you know
1: yeah yeah no it's interesting and i think for me like documentaries gives you such an amazing training in, in trusting your instincts and, and shooting from the heart it's really easy on narrative and commercial sets to um for your mind to go purely technical and be like okay well i need this lighting ratio and we've got three cameras going and you've got to you you do have to be very technical but I think doc is such a, a way of shooting where you're shooting from the heart and you're feeling things and you're seeing what the characters are doing and you're making very instinctual movements with the camera based on those feelings that you are that are within yourself as you're watching. So whenever I get into this like overly technical mode on set, I have to mind myself like, okay, it's time to feel a little bit. It's time to like think about what's this character going through and, and try and bring that back in, in, into me because that's really, I think, what makes special cinematography is when you can feel that in the movement, in the lighting all those things. So doc really, I think is important for that.
0: That's so, I love that. I, I, yeah.
1: I truly believe it. <laughs> it's, it's cheesy, but I believe it. What,
0: no, it's, it's, yeah, but you can tell it in your work. You and I met on a tiny little true crime documentary <laughs> yeah. series, but yeah. every time I looked at what you were shooting, it, you could tell you were trying to, it was evocative of whatever was going on. I also, I was in post in that show and it was every one of those interviews you could feel a little bit of the personality of whoever we were interviewing. And I know that was you working with Matt yeah. Casano, the director. You're the one looking through the lens. That's good. And it, it was just really cool to see that and to know that's what elevates, I think, anything you work on. Yeah. Is that everyone is going towards that truth of... Totally. ...the character or the scene or the... Whether it's narrative or documentary.
1: Totally. And I think also just with the interviews, it's people are always... I think a lot of cinematographers struggle And okay, you're doing a doc series with interviews, but for me, interviews have always been like this opportunity of, okay, what what can we actually say about someone with this frame? Yeah. And how can we make this as dynamic and interesting and quirky as possible? I just did a, a project with the Way Brothers, who they did this great documentary series called Wild Wild Country. Oh, okay. And from them, I was just blown away because you can go into a space and you can immediately say, this is the most beautiful frame in the space. And for them, it was about, well, what's the most meaningful frame in the space? You know, if we have to sacrifice 10% of beauty, but this frame now really speaks about the person and their quirkiness or their strangeness or their loneliness, then that's the frame we should go with. And and I think that was really cool to see because you can get caught up as a DP, just make a beautiful image, but it's it's really what we should be doing is make a meaningful image, you know?
0: Yeah, I think that's, it's it's interesting because I work in television mainly for my day job. As, as you know, I'm going to get my feature made, but yeah. I have to pay my rent. And yeah, uh, like I'm working on a show right now that they've got a black background that travels with us and it's just this yeah. gray space behind, you know, now, do I like it for my own <laughs> comfort of schedule? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I We pop it up in a conference room and everyone comes to us. Yeah. Do I care for it artistically? Not really. There's like some of the characters I've met, meaning like the people we're interviewing, I could just in my head, see some of the things we could have done with them yeah. to really also augment the story being told.
1: Yeah, no, totally. Just
0: in frame. No, I
1: yeah. think it, it's a constant struggle, right? Cause it's, it that speaks to me to this like constant balance. We're all in as creators, where there's this push pull between a, a lot of why you get hired as a, DP is 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 this person easy to work with, which I think is important. Mm-hmm. But you also need to look inside yourself sometimes and be like, okay, I know production is gonna hate this, but I, I need to push a little bit and I need to fight for fight for it, even though it's gonna be a big pain in the butt. So that's like a constant struggle, which I it's always difficult to get it's a challenging thing.
0: Yeah, I mean you you've gotta remember it's your name on it too. Yeah. So I would assume some of that constant struggle has to do with that
1: (laughs) yeah it's challenging but
0: to kind of dial it back a little why why cinematography are you or is this just a stepping stone or is this what you want to do yeah
1: i mean i think we all start off being like oh i'm a director that's how everyone starts and and growing up i was always in my you know group of friends we're all making movies and i was always okay i'm the director and you guys all listen to me and I, i was very authoritative and crazy. And, you know, I was like, okay, I'm the director. And I think as I I, I went to film school at USC, which was, you know, really a a crazy experience, because it was my first time going to Los Angeles. And I had no idea. I was just, I didn't even really know what LA was. I just was like, okay, uh, seems like a good film school, I should go. And I think as I, as I did direct more and more films i really found that what spoke to me was crafting that visual language right like editing to me is something i deeply respect but have always found to be a very painful process and i think one thing that i thrive on is pressure and when you're on set you as a dp you have pressure like it really forces you to trust your instincts and just go whereas when i'd be in an edit room or in pre-production or whatever it just it was hard for me to stay focused and when you have a bit more time it's you have more decisions to think through. But on set you're like, I just need to make a decision now or this shot's not gonna happen. So you just need to decide and, and I found I thrived in that. But on a most more emotional sense, I just I fell in love with capturing images and I think when I did direct, my films were they were fine, they were, you know, good, but I think visually, they always did something different. And, and so I think, you know, through reflection, I, I think visuals is what I'm really attracted to. And I've always loved about cinematography that like, you know, you're going through it with your own film, it's, it's so challenging to make a movie and, and to get people excited about it and to raise the money and to get people involved. And like all of that is such an amazing thing that I'm just blown away by my director friends. But I, I just, I don't think I could do it. I love that as a DP, you pretty much you get the call when the film is really happy. You
0: got the money. Come on. Yeah.
1: It's like, we got the money. Now let's do the fun part. And so I get to join when the film is really fun and I get to leave when it gets a bit less fun. And, and then I get to see a finished product. And it's amazing. Right. So I love that element of it that, you know, I kind of get to go in right as the war is starting rather than, the lead up to it or the, or the, the stuff after I, I, I jump into the battle and that's always been really fun for me. And that's cool. quite the adventure. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, it's funny Cause I, I think you listened to that episode. Cause I think that's the one I sent my friend, Jack, who's a director. He's, yeah. we were talking about how you spend years trying to get to that fun part. Yeah. And then that fun part, 20 days.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and it's just so And then right
0: after that it's, it's years after that, you know?
1: Um, yeah. And it's so fragile. I just have so many films that, it's like, oh, green light, red light. Like, we got an actor. Oh, the actor dropped out. We lost 25% of our financing. So it's, I think every film is a miracle. And, and I'm always just like holding my breath. If you can just get to day one, usually it'll happen. But so often, it's this I'm very fragile kind of living entity.
0: Yeah, it's a roller coaster. I've come close <laughs> to getting development <laughs> funds four times now. Four. Yeah,
1: no, that I don't know how you deal with. Like, I would, yeah, you know, I, mentally, must be challenging.
0: It's very, it's mentally and heart challenge and, you know, yeah, and yeah. you just have to learn how to like, okay, you got to sit in it. Second, you got to breathe through it. You got to go to some, yeah. you know, buy yourself some ice cream.
1: <laughs> yeah, totally.
0: Go to bed and then wake up the next day and go, how do I, Yeah. okay, now I got a zig because the zag didn't work. Yeah,
1: um, totally. But I'm going to get it done. You will. I believe.
0: Um. So how, speaking of all your director friends, which I hope uh, I'm one of them, even though I don't have a feature. Again,
1: yeah. No, you
0: are. <laughs> um, um, what do you see as the importance of the DP director relationship? Because yeah, I know there's a couple of directors that I know that you work with quite often. Yeah, at least in the doc world.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think so much of DP director relationship is this creating this really trusting relationship, right? When I when I jump into pre production on a new film with a director I've never worked with, you can get into shot listing and you can get into references and you can get into all the prep. But for me, prep is honestly, it's so much of it. 90% of it is building a relationship and getting to know each other and becoming like safe with each other. And I think a word I always come back to with this relationship is the vulnerability. It's, you both need to feel safe to try things and to fail and to be bold and to not worry that the other one is going to judge you for an idea or something that doesn't work because if you can have that then you guys push yourself to do something different and great and unique it's very easy to fall into the trend of i can make a uh, look interesting and beautiful but for me it's i think now that i've shot for 10 years or so it's it's more about making an interest an, an image that feels different And that feels unique and that feels like something that only I could have created. And you need a director who's willing to say, fly with that, David, like whatever crazy ideas you have, I'm not going to shut them down. Let's try it. And if I can speak to like probably my closest collaborator, like Lance Oppenheim, he's a director I've been working with since he was 15. So we've developed that over almost 12 years now. And I think it's such an amazing quality about him is that he never shuts down an idea. He's always saying, let's try something crazy here let's make it different. And that's just so amazing and freeing as a cinematographer, right? There's nothing worse than when you feel like when you're on set and you feel like your ideas are secondary, you kind of go into this zone of just being a technician. And I think the really amazing directors are the ones who not only with their DPs, but with all people on the crew, they lift them up and they empower their ideas and that creates something really special. So, yeah, if you look at the great all time directors, I think a lot of them. Of embrace that.
0: Oh, I think A, I hope I strive to be that kind of a person, but I also, when I look at them just like you, it's it's almost like watching a conductor. Yeah. They're allowing your instruments, the camera. Yeah. And by allowing that collaboration, you're elevating my vision because my script is,
1: yeah, totally.
0: Literally a conversation I'm having with you or with a production designer. When you're reading it, totally. I'm hoping you're seeing my vision. And then Once I'm totally the director and we're getting to the visuals. I hope that conversation continues, you know,
1: yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's about not being I think directors can get into a habit sometimes of acting like they need to know everything. And I think the best directors are the ones who say I actually don't know everything. And and let's talk about it. and Let's see what works, you know, because if it's just your ideas, that's it. But but if you bring in everyone, yeah, then you have this kind of cacophony of creativity. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. have
0: DP'd for for I mean, from what I've watched you, <laughs> you you've kind of yeah you've got like an Oscar-nominated short that you DP'd, um, which is concerto, a concerto is a Conversation. Um, DP'd some kind of heaven that got a lot of yeah. You were close. That was Sundance, right?
1: Yeah, that yeah that was a Sundance
0: premiere. Yeah, and then you recently just did the um, South by Southwest film, The Cow That's Now Gone in the Night
1: gone in the night yeah weird the title change
0: it was funny because you you posted i'm like is that the and i had to look it up it was very funny yeah but is there like a connective thread yeah
1: yeah, yeah, you can see
0: to that or how your journeys
1: yeah i think certainly i'm strange in the sense that i've really worked on a lot of different things like i think a lot of dps end up being like just documentary or just narrative or just commercial but i really kind of like my first five years of my career was such a weird hodgepodge of like go from a doc to a narrative to a short to music video to a commercial and it was like really all over the place and I think probably to a fault at times people are like you need to like focus in a little but I just I'm a very excitable person and, and kind of get excited by all forms of filmmaking but I think certainly documentaries have been like a very important part of my career and something that like deeply informs the way I shoot so as I'm moving into more and more narrative work, I think a lot of the directors who are moved by my work are, are ones who want it to have a little bit of that like ruggedness of documentary. I, when I do narrative shoots, like The Cow or Gone in the Night, is and I just did a series called Delhi Crime for Netflix, there's a pressure to shoot with multiple cameras. And just because you move faster, and I, I as a DP, I really try to focus on shooting with a single camera like I would in a in, a, in most documentary situations. And there's many reasons for that. But for me, it's really about proximity to camera and what that does to an image. So when you're shooting with three cameras, you have to shoot with longer lenses and shoot from afar. And because if you have three cameras and you're shooting really close to someone's face, then that camera is going to be in the image of the other two cameras. You can't really do it. But with documentary, I've always loved that if I have a single camera, I can get right up to a person and I can film their close up on a wide lens and... There's something about that has always appealed to me there's like an intimacy that you can get with a 24 millimeter lens that you can't get with a 100 millimeter lens from across the room it just feels different there's a different compression to it and as an audience I think you can realize oh there's a closeness to the camera when you're on a wider lens. It's why I think people love like Chivo's work so much is that he's right there with the characters and the actors and you can feel this immense kind of intimacy with it so that's been a very crucial part of my work as i've moved more into narrative it's like that fight of being like from the very beginning listen i know you want to shoot with three cameras and i know that'll cut down on our shooting days but if we want to create something that's really beautiful and special why you're hiring me is we we try and do it with a single camera so that's like on a very technical level on a on an emotional level it's I, i i i found that i love character stories about people struggling and people going through things and you know plot heavy stories have never necessarily appealed to me i've always been more interested in characters and subtle emotions and things like that so when i read a script if it's too much like this happens and this happens my brain kind of checks out a little bit i've always been drawn to these films that have these kind of subtle layers to a character that kind of unravel slowly and i think that hopefully that's prominent in my work but yeah it's always a learning cool. experience and um, but, so here's yeah.
0: the, the fan question.
1: Yeah,
0: I don't know if Will will like that I called him a fan, but okay. Um, <laughs> it's from a, a okay. friend of mine. His name is Will Pruitt. He's the son of someone you've worked with, <laughs> Bill. Um, and Will's, um, Will's growing up and yeah. becoming a filmmaker in his own right. He's totally. been writing scripts and he worked for Robert Downey Jr.'s company, just recently. Cool. Some kind of heaven cool. is one of his favorite films and he discovered it on his own, I believe. Cool. And then I, when he said something about it, I go, Oh, I know the DP for that. That's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and he's really talented a really nice guy. But um, so last night I, I texted him and said, do you have a question for David? Just cause I wanted to see if he had one. And so this was his question. And he said, um, yeah, in some kind of heaven, yeah. what stands out the most to me is that every single shot almost has a look and feel of a scripted movie, as though the characters were able to entirely forget they had a camera in front of them.
1: Interesting, yeah.
0: What did it take to achieve this? How did you and Lance go about capturing such raw, subtle expression yeah. from the
1: subjects you followed? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a really interesting question. And I think it's definitely speaks to kind of how I've always tried to approach documentaries Is and it's similar kinds of to what I was talking about with proximity to camera. Is there's been like I think I think it's it's less relevant now, but five years ago, I feel like a lot of the time documentaries were expected to be shot on like a zoom lens, and there was a bit of a sloppiness to documentary that I was always like, why do documentaries feel like this? There's got to be a better way. Like people shot on ENG style cameras with a zoom lens, and you be in a corner shooting from far away. There's got to be a way to make documentaries feel more cinematic, like you're watching a movie, and and. So a lot of it was like, I, I started shooting documentaries on Primes and, and started trying to get close to the characters. And I think there's this belief sometimes, like sometimes when I bring this up with new directors, they'll be like, well, isn't that going to scare them or freak them out or like change them? And and what I've really found is that if you do it for a while, you do it for a couple hours with that person, that person feels comfortable with you. They forget about the camera, even though it's right up in their face. It's remarkable to me how that happens. And. Especially when I do Verite documentaries where I'm shooting with someone for a month, they completely forget about you, even if you're right there. So that's always been interesting to me and and with some kind of heaven, me and Lance just looked at photo books. Lance always brings an amazing amount of references to things and it totally shapes it. And he brings music and he brings artwork and all sorts of things. And he just creates in your head before you've even shot, this is the feeling. He doesn't necessarily know what he wants it to look like, but he knows how he wants it to feel emotionally. So we specifically looked at this amazing photo book that's just had such a profound impact on me called Pictures, by, Pictures from Home by Larry Salton. And it's this incredible series that this photographer did about his parents, I think, living in Palm Springs, his aging parents. And, and it's this raw, sad, lone book about them in their last years. And I was like, okay, well, you know, what if we really tried to push to make this film feel like a photograph, like every image feel like a photograph that was how we approached it so there's a few things that went in there's a stillness to photography right obviously it's one image so it's still so i was like well let's maybe we'll try tripod and see if this is possible and it's really hard to shoot documentary on tripod but luckily with old people they don't move around all that much so that's like an advantage right like you can't really do tripod when you're with like 10 year olds it's a bit more challenging With old people, you can actually just set a frame and they'll just sit there. And you're like, okay, great. So that's really helpful. But we really just tried to sculpt frames. And Lance has always been an advocate of saying, okay, I know true documentary. You just film wherever they are, whatever they're doing at whatever time. And for us, it was much more about, we know this person is going to do this at some point, situation, let's put them in a place. Let's put them at a time of day that really makes this feel special and and more interesting and we'll shoot it that way so we we definitely controlled a lot of the situations which people are like that's not true documentary and maybe it's not and maybe we're not interested in that um but we would kind of really try and control our end and then once the scene is happening we let it we don't we don't interrupt in that sense but we do put ourselves in situations where we can kind of succeed visually
0: that's cool i mean there's also there was also a sense from what i remember, like you would sit on something before the action happened, like the pool, which now yeah. hearing you talk yeah. about it is about yeah. a photograph. It's like a photograph. It's just sitting there still, and then it becomes... It it comes to life with the humans that dive in or the, you know. So congratulations, you achieved yeah. that. <laughs> super cool to hear that. I've chatted with Lance yeah. a little bit on Instagram, but he seems very busy.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and I, he's, he's a lunatic.
0: Can't wait to see where his career takes him so well, we're
1: shooting we're shooting next week so we'll we'll hopefully got new stuff coming soon oh cool is that what you're doing here because you were no i've been i've just been back for a bit but we're okay. uh, we've been bopping around all over arizona and new york we're shooting this this new feature doc so oh cool it's a weird one i wish i could no don't worry about tell it tell everyone I, about it already but it's, yeah it's a strange one i
0: expect nothing less out of lance um, <laughs>
1: so. he's a, he's a very excitable young man, but he's, uh, so, um,
0: he's got a, a follower good, from the good. beginning.
1: Yeah, we'll do. It.
0: So how does, how does working, you and I met on the true crime series, which is probably like, how does all of that yeah. differ to you? Like working TV? Cause I know you just did you know, deep water, which yeah. I know is a series for Netflix, but it's still part of that true crime, I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It felt a little, yeah, totally. No, I mean, like deadly cults to me. It's. It's. I think there's so many similarities in a way and so many differences. I think it's interesting with documentaries. There's kind of like really two types that have emerged. And I think with Netflix and Hulu and all these things, there is a bit more of a formula now of, okay, people, pretty much you do a bunch of interviews and um, you get the story and then you kind of have them edit it. And then a couple of weeks or months later, you go and you do the kind of like stylized B-roll that kind of fills in all the gaps at the archival doesn't have and, and that's interesting to me and on on deadly calls we did so many kind of like of these kind of we, we tried not to even call them recreations because that word is so cringy to me but we did a lot of this very stylized moody b-roll and 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 I think with docs it's like I'm always just trying not to be on the nose about recreations right It's about creating an image that represents something rather than shooting something that directly happens. So I think if we're talking about someone feeling lonely, Rather than filming a person alone in a room looking sad, maybe you're shooting a a piece of carpet and there's a little sunlight on it and it's fading away. How can you be more metaphorical with the images? But I think right as of late, the documentary projects that have really excited me um, are verite projects where you really are starting, you know, following a present day story. I think something in the soul just sparks in me when i'm when i'm with real people in re, in real moments that just does something to me where i i have this natural inclination of okay the camera belongs right here and it all hits so yeah there's kind of those two types and Ver- verite is such a hard thing to do nowadays because i think with netflix and and, and hulu and hbo they really want an assured storyline that can be done in whatever 30 amount of shooting days and, and with verite it's so much more of like we don't know, like, maybe we'll need 100 days, maybe we'll need 200 days. So that's, it's harder to make and, and harder to get kind of networks involved. But I think when you can do it, it's really special. And The Deep End was like that, for me, it was, it was a, a true verite doc that we could really sink our teeth into. How
0: long did you guys shoot?
1: Uh, I mean, you know, the director, who's an amazing, John Casby, who's an amazing cinematographer as well, we we shoot together, probably worked on it for over three years. But on and off. I was on it for maybe two years. And then um, I imagine he maybe did over 150 shooting days. So amazing. I mean, yeah, maybe more, I don't know, but pretty crazy and pretty amazing that he was able to convince Hulu to do well, it.
0: Yeah. Cause that's, a, that goes back to an old school way of doing a okay documentary. Whereas what you're talking about is like, I came up in that world in unscripted. We've got, you're casting it, you're putting them in a the situation you have totally 30 days to shoot this thing that's supposed to look like that. And it just becomes formulaic yeah. to a certain extent. And I love when something feels and you can tell that they took the time to just be there and let things. Happen.
1: Yeah, no, I, th- I think it's special. It's it's rare though. It's so hard to get Verity docs made nowadays. It,
0: it, yeah. It's, it's, I think the networks and everyone see it as an enemy to the budget. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. So You've touched on this a little bit, but what kind of projects really attract you, and why? And do you need to be attracted to something? Yeah. When something.
1: Yeah. I, someone said something to me a couple of years ago that was really interesting, and they said every feature film you do is like a tattoo; like it's going to be there on you forever, and people are always going to think of you for that. And that like really struck out to me because there was a time in my career where I was so I just love shooting. I really love shooting. So I was so just like gung ho to just do anything. I didn't really care if it was not necessarily something I wasn't super interested in. I just love being on set and learning. And I think slowly I've now <laughs> transitioned a little bit where I'm, I'm trying to be much more thoughtful and mindful about the, the films I take on and, and what do I bring to this film, and how does this film actually reflect who I am as a person? And I don't think you can do a super good job on on a film if, if you don't feel something emotionally that really touches you. I've definitely done films in the past that I did because they had a good budget or they had a good director attached, and I didn't necessarily feel things on set, and and you can see it in the work; it's not as dynamic. But when I really, you know, a film like some kind of heaven, where I feel so deeply for the characters and, and have so many things inside myself while I'm filming, then, then that's when that inspiration really comes out. So yeah, I've really been trying to be more considerate about about the films I do. And yeah, at the heart of it, I do think a director is really the first thing that I look at. Is this director someone that is going to be kind and easy to work with and, and, and good to my crew? But on a deeper level, is this director vulnerable and willing to listen to ideas? And then ultimately, does this director actually have the persistence to to make this really good? There's always times in posts where certain directors get to a place where the film's almost done, but there's a few little mistakes. And it's, well, are we going to push to fix those little mistakes? Or are we just going to let it be? And I always respect the directors who say, no, there's a little tiny boom shadow in the top right side of frame for half a second. And it's like, no, we're not going to let that be. We're going to fix that. You know, Lance, for instance, is just an obsessive in terms of making sure that every frame is perfect. And that quality control ultimately is like, honestly, super important to me because I think film is such an imperfect medium. And I think as much as we can, as great as we need to push to make it as precise and pristine as as possible. This is our artwork, and why just let it be a sloppy thing? So director is really important, and and the story, you know, I just need a story and characters that really speak to me. And and I found I'm I'm much more interested in sadder stories, honestly. I don't know what it is in me, but I like the poeticism. Yeah, so it's interesting. I've known you since kind
0: of the beginning of your career a little bit, right? You weren't out of school (laughs) very long before we... We brought you on a deadly deadliest cult if i remember correctly yeah
1: i think I've maybe three or four years yeah i can't yeah it wasn't long i think it just speaks to i think documentary as well it's like you create these like beautiful little families when you're making them yeah. and it's such a weird fleeting experience because you get so close with people for like a month or two at a time and you just you're all creating this thing together and it's this beautiful community right i think as humans, we're all searching for that. But it's so fleeting in documentary. Like yeah. You get so close with these people and then you all go off and these people always remain important thing, figments in your imagination, in your mind. But ultimately, it's this fleeting experience. And But I just love the documentary world and how we connect like that.
0: I like um, being able to remain connected. That's one thing that social media has done fairly well, I think, for me, is I do... I'll connect with the people I really want to stay connected with and then yeah you can support totally. them, you know even just a little heart totally. tells you that I'm seeing you. Totally.
1: No, I love and it. And I'm
0: seeing that trip. But um you read a very early version of alone girl and thank you for taking the time of to course
1: no of course <laughs> um which of course, i like wanted to get made so bad yeah
0: so you know it's a it's it's that coming a middle age story wrapped in an unromantic comedy maybe not as sad as um you, you've been working <laughs> on so i've you know and i've taken that rom-com and turned it on its head and i remember you commenting on that when we we met for coffee that day you liked that it wasn't normal yeah yeah but what advice because you've now been able to work on several features Possibly with first time directors. I'm not sure for features and stuff. Yeah. A couple of them. Yeah. yeah what advice as a, you know, cause I'm going to be working with DPs and stuff. Yeah. But what advice would you give me as I plan? Yeah, yeah. You know, I do plan to make storyboards and short shot listing obviously, but what advice
1: do you have? Yeah. About? Prep is like so important and valuable. And I think getting a DP involved super early is, is really important. There's nothing worse than, you know, I think directors have great taste, but it's, it's always interesting. A location that might look good, to your eye initially, you do need to assess from a visual language and say, okay, it looks cool. Where are the light sources? What are the windows? How does the light move around the house? How can we use that to our advantage? What's the floor like? Can we move a dolly on it? All those things are really important. And I think if you get a DP involved super early and talk with the director early, they they can inform on those things and make the film look So much better, but it goes back to my earlier point. The number one thing beyond anything technical is just being vulnerable with your creators. It's so important. Like I always emphasize it. Like my first meetings with directors are really about scoping out. Like, is this a vulnerable person? Is this someone who I can really push with? Is this someone I can be open with? It's it's a romantic relationship in a sense. Like it's you have to be vulnerable. Like it it just won't work if you aren't. I think creators who are purely technical with each other, you're going to make, you're gonna make a, a film void of emotion. A film can look great, but if it doesn't mean anything, then who cares? So I think a director just needs to open up and say, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to this. What do you think? And that, just saying that is so valuable. It opens up your creator's hearts, right? It's all of a sudden now, now I'm excited. Oh, well, we could try this or this or this or this. And obviously a director, you have to have some level of, Decision making, you have you have to be able to say no. I want it this way, and and that's fine. And I'll always respect that. If a director, you know, says David, I love that idea, but I just think for this, it's it's too much or it's too little. Then I'll, I'm going to respect that. If I signed on, then it means I, I respect this director and I believe in this director, and so I'm going to listen to it. But I think opening up that world to your creators is just the number one thing a director can do and and just don't act like you have all the answers because that's no fun for anyone you got to be open so i know you're gonna you're gonna make something amazing and you've always been such a wonderful person in terms of just like opening people's hearts up you know like like, it's first thing i when i met you just like oh this is a very easy person to talk to so that's that's, oh
0: thank you yeah i thought that about you too good parking (laughs) lot You were offloading gear, and I, I was refusing to help. No,
1: um, dictator. <laughs>
0: I think at that point I was still in my late forties, but I, I got to a point in my life where I'm like, <laughs> "Don't hurt your back for them,"
1: <laughs> you know. Well, and I will say, obviously, don't hurt your back, but I also do really respect directors. This is a smaller thing, but and it's something you're amazing at. But directors, like directors I work with on commercials and stuff, who they're good people, but they, they'll come on set and they don't really know anyone. They don't talk to anyone. They I talk to them and they sit in their village and and they direct and they're talented people. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think directors like Lance, for instance, when he's on set, we've done commercials together. He's introducing himself to every single person and he's valuing every single person. He's making every single person feel seen, whether it's the PA or the key grip or the gaffer or the steady cam op. He, He has a genuine interest in everyone and that empowers everyone. Like when they know a director cares about them, they're willing to work so much harder. They're willing. They don't care about the meal penalty. They don't care about the OT. If they care about the director, then they're willing to fight for them. Whereas, if they're just a director who's in the distance, eating a better lunch than them and drinking Starbucks that was ordered for just them, there's something that that does to the crew where they're not going to push quite as hard. You want them to treat it as something that's part of their soul as well. It's not just a day job for them. You know.
0: Yeah, I'm a big believer in because I came up from the very like. I was a runner then I was a set PA then I was and I I understand the value of a producer or a director coming up and shaking your hand and yeah. introducing yourself and then every day saying hi to you by using your name. Yeah. And it's not a super important. To me it's not a it's not a thing I'm putting on. I am interested in everyone and I am I want everyone to feel seen. Yeah. And that comes down to vulnerability too. hundred percent. You know, that's what you're describing as a director who's not vulnerable enough to let the crew see them.
1: Yeah, it's a lesson I learned. Yeah, no, I learned this from my mom like early on. She does some a very different things. She's worked on HDTV shows her whole life and I think she's made amazing things. It's a different world than what I'm interested in, but she was a producer and, and she's, she always told me, she said, no, it doesn't matter if it's the PA or the director, like you... You be be kind to every single person. Like, you don't know if that PA is going to be a director one day hiring you. And that's been so true. Like, I've met so many PAs early in my career who now are doing big commercials who probably are hiring much bigger DPs than me. But those relationships are really important. And I think as a cinematographer, as a director, as any leader on set, it's like really important to, if you have a minute and you say, just ask the PA who's probably having a hard day, who probably feels not seen, just say, hey, how, how's it going? What are you interested in? What do you want to do? How can I help? And and I remember as when I was pa those little conversations when a DP would come up to me and just talk to me about cameras were so meaningful. So it's, I think we owe it to always do that. It's cheesy, but it's I really strongly believe it.
0: Yeah, I always also, when, I have, when I'm when i having those conversations, cause I always love to reach back and give, because I was, we're, I'm here because other people helped and reached a hand back. You're here because of that. So you need to continue that tradition. But I always tell people, including Will, who just asked you that question. I've known him since he was seven. And it's really cool to see him blossom into this. I I was helping him with their first short. He had directed with his brother. So awesome. All of that's awesome. But what I've told both of them and almost anyone I've ever come into contact with that's a PA or an intern or whatever, one of the first things I tell them is, don't tell people you're a PA. Tell them what, what you want to do. We know you're a PA. We all started as a PA. Yeah. But if you're a writer yeah. and you want to write. Totally. Tell people you're a writer. You are. You're writing, it's, aren't you? It's
1: so, impor- it's so important.
0: Because how am I supposed to know how to help you if I don't know where you want to be? Because maybe I know someone you can talk to.
1: It's it's so important. It's
0: that old adage that you hear a lot of people <laughs> say, just don't be an asshole.
1: Oh, and, and I think, but I think you're right. Like that, that my... Now I can speak to a lesson from my dad. It, I remember there was a time after film school where I used to do a lot of sound as well. I had like a deep love of sound design, so in school I would really, I, I would really do both. I would shoot, but I would also I would mix a lot of projects, and it came to a point where I was like, okay, I need to focus on just DPing at this point. But it was hard because a lot of people saw me as a sound person. And my dad was like, you know, for one important thing is when you you know, he noticed he was like when you talk to people, you you say they say, What do you do? And I said Oh, I do a bit of sound and I shoot a bit and I direct it a little bit, but yeah, I mostly shoot and that's not an answer. If you're gonna get hired on a job, that's not what people want to hear. They wanted to say, Okay, what do you do? I said, I'm a cinematographer, I shoot things, I've been shooting things since I was six years old and I'm a cinematographer. That like changed everything. Like as soon as I got that through my head, it's and you start branding yourself as a cinematographer, then you start getting jobs because people say, Oh, I, my DP is not available. But I remember this guy a couple of months ago I met. He said he's a Russian. He seemed like a good guy. Hit him up. So I have so many AC friends and gaffer friends, PA friends who are like, Oh, how do I do it? I can't transition. No one. They say, it's, Well, you keep saying you're an assistant uh, assistant camera person. You've got to say you're a DP. Yeah. It's really important. I know. Even if you don't believe it in yourself, you just got to say it. Like, fake it till you, make it.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, well, your first fan, your first person that needs to believe in you is you.
1: Yeah, totally. And
0: you got to know where you want to be. And you got to, you got to just say, that's what you are. Totally. <laughs> but what that also helps is not just you, it helps the person you're telling. So if I'm on a set yeah. and I'm not, I'm a producer or whatever. And a PA tells me they want to write and get into a writer's room.
1: yeah.
0: Now I'm not, I don't work in TV Narrative. So it's not necessarily that I have a contact with a writer's room, but I now know that's what that person was. So I don't know if you remember the PA we had in Texas. She was
1: talking about Ruth?
0: Not Ruth, the other one. um, Andrea. Oh,
1: uh, yeah, I do. I totally remember. She was an amazing PA. So
0: Andrea's a writer, and she moved shortly after that. They both moved. To LA. To LA, yeah. But Andrea's been working her way up. She got herself onto Superstore as a production secretary, got in the union, like all of that stuff. But she's always wanted to be a writer. And I believe I had a conversation with her in Texas too. I was just like, this is what you need to say. Don't tell people you're a PA. Don't just tell them that's what you want to do. But I have consistently, I'll see someone going, looking for a writer's PA or a script coordinator, right? On Twitter, And I'll send it to her. And I've been doing that for years because I know where she wants to go. And she's I don't have the credits for that. Apply anyway. Apply anyway. Yeah. You don't know what you're looking for. Totally. And they say that to cut away from the people who don't have the bravery to just apply. But without her, without saying what she wants to do, I don't know how to try to help her. Aside from everything.
1: No, it's really good. It's really good advice. It's super important advice, I think.
0: When it comes to an anatomy of a scene, because that can be seen in different things, whether you're seeing it as a DP or Mm -hmm. an editor seeing it or a writer. But have you learned anything that you can share with me as I embark on directing?
1: Yeah, I think with with, if we are speaking specifically to kind of camera work and working with a director and figuring out how you actually cover a scene, right? Like, it can go back to that pre-production stage of, okay, we can have a very thorough idea and conversations about what we think the blocking will be and how we think we'll cover that. But I've always really taken it with like a grain of salt. You can, you do all that work and you have it and it's always in your back pocket. But for me, and maybe this is because of the documentary experience, I've always really tried to arrive on set and you don't tell the actors too much about where you want them to be or what you want them to do. You know, you can kind of guide them a little bit. Like as a DP, I'm in the corner and, and they're blocking a scene. And they're trying it for the first time. And I'm just watching in the corner quietly, seeing your, in my mind, a billion little things are going through my head. of like, Oh, that's going to be a problem there. That might be a problem there. You might be a problem there. Uh, It'd be better if they went to the window there. There's all these things on a technical level that I'm thinking about, but I try and let them be free to start. And because all these amazing little things in the performance come out when the actor feels free, I think when a director goes, you're going to start here and you're going to walk over there. And then at this moment in the conversation you're gonna to walk to the kitchen it feels a little stale and that's what I think so much TV suffers from where it feels false um, but if you can really incorporate the actors into the blocking and, and let them try things that's an amazing thing that will add so much heart to your film you think of films like Blue Valentine or Place beyond the Pines like I think Derek C and Franz is a director who's like a master of this where you watch the blocking and it just feels real it feels like this is real life. And the actors can move around. They aren't just landing on a mark and saying their lines and then walking over to a table and saying their lines. It feels fluid and just like real life. And I'm always like, how do you get there? How do you get there? And I've learned it's just about letting the actors be free. And sure, I'll go in after and I'll say, oh, I love what you did there. Is there any way maybe for that moment, instead of going into this dark corner with no depth, you could go do it by this beautiful window with the sunlight pouring through. You can make those little tweaks and those little corrections. And typically a good actor will say, absolutely. Is that going to make me look better? And you say, absolutely. They say, great. And with docs, I've always, I've learned that. And, and I try and light in a way that isn't too restrictive. I'm always saying there's three ways, right? I light from my windows, from outside. I light with my practicals, my lamps, and my little things that I scatter through a room. And then I light with whatever I can hide on the ceiling. And I really, you know, sometimes I have to do it. I try, you know, you have to bring a, a light in on a stand and obstruct the space a bit. But I really try and keep the, the space open on a three hundred and sixty level so that I can move freely. The actor can move freely, and maybe it'll look a little less pretty sometimes. But if it means that the blocking feels more real, then wow, like that's an amazing thing. So I've always appreciated directors who, when I watch their film, it has a sense of realness to it. And yeah, if you haven't seen Derek Cianfrance's work, you should. I think Blue Valentine is like just a, a ma- it's an absolute masterpiece. I,
0: I don't know if I ever watched it. I heard about it, but I never haven't checked it out. The big film that was an inspiration for A Lone Girl when I was writing was Beginners.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Beginners is amazing.
0: It's just an amazing film. And if you read the script, it's so close to what wound up on screen too
1: mike mills because yeah i did behind the scenes for 20th century Women, and i just you could go on these bigger sets and you're expecting it to be crazy and complicated and like giant setups and i walked on his set and it was like oh feels like a film school short it was so casual and the lighting was so simple i was like oh you don't have to do all these crazy things to make it look good like you just have to think about good production design and basic lighting and good costuming. And it just felt so simple. And I was just, he just treated things so simply. His little directing adjustments were not these grand speeches. You'd go in and he say, oh, can you say it a little softer? And uh, just kind of amazing. You'd expect these directors to be so eccentric, but he was so simple and practical. Oh, that's um, that's cool it. to hear. Yeah. I'm glad I asked you about. That. Yeah, really interesting. I, it was formative for me. Like,
0: yeah, what was informative when I read is because I, I, you know, I love the film that the first one. I'm more of a fan of Beginners than I, I think. 20th Century Women is a great film, but I just I think it's something. No, but Beginners is a like a masterpiece. But it has that element of tapping into the character for the transitional elements into the character's job. So Ewan's McGregor's job. as the graphic designer, which I love that running joke of him trying to get them to, to do the, the sads album about the history of sadness. But that's what informed my choice to do that art project for Sam with the cards and the story in a sentence that she does, because I was looking for a creative way to communicate the interior life of what was going on with her decision. And I, yeah, yeah, I didn't want to do VO, which he does a little of in in beginners. No slack. It's brilliant. It just wasn't yeah, yeah. what I wanted to yeah. do. But I was trying to figure that out. And it was watching, realizing that he had connected the visual part of it to to Ewan's just interior character. I was like, oh, maybe I can do something like that. No,
1: it's beautiful. I think that's a wonderful quirky technique.
0: Yeah, and it'll be really cool to capture in an interesting way visually too.
1: Like I was like, this is also something that'll hundred percent
0: that a DP can have fun with me.
1: Yeah, and you want those ideas for your creators where they can have these little things that they get excited about. It's awesome.
0: Do you have any uh, advice for the listeners out there, like anyone who might be you? Yeah, ten years ago.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think the number one thing is just keep going. It's, it's a really up and down industry and it, it's like very easy to get low on yourself. I think I, I feel bipolar sometimes working in this business because one day I'll feel like an absolute genius and then I have a really hard day on set where I feel like a complete failure and you just keep pushing and keep trying and know that ultimately the right projects will find you. It's really hard. You're not going to, not every single project you work on is going to be brilliant. It's just so many things need to go right for something to be special. And it's okay when things aren't going right. When I know it's not necessarily going to be the best thing you keep, you wake up and you say, I'm still going to try and make this as good as I possibly can. And and I'm going to do the best I can every day. And even though it might not be the best film, people are going to remember that. And people are going to say, okay, he really pushed to make this project special, despite whatever circumstances were going on. And you can hopefully build a reputation of doing that. Do the best job you can every day, no matter what project it is, whether it's a stupid mayonnaise commercial, or if it's the most beautiful, poetic, big budget film on earth, you got to do the best work you can possibly. And when you feel like a failure, you got to just you got to reflect on what went wrong and you just got to keep moving. It's, I think there's many better cinematographers than me that I've met, but I think persistence is something that I at least am relatively good at of just saying, okay, that was a hard day. I'm going to wake up today and I'm going to still try and make this really beautiful. So I think that's an important skill for people in all, all areas of life, but in film, it's really important and you, you need to build a reputation where people know you as no matter what the project is, he's going to give it, she's going to give it their all, you know?
0: Turning the tables, do you have anything for me? And you don't have to.
1: I'm super interested in you just because I've always known you as more of on the editing side and story side and producing side and, and I think as a director I'm just like so excited to see what you're going to do, but I think I'm just curious with what inspired you to make try and make this film, you know.
0: Well, so when I to take it back to the very beginning like you, although my parents didn't take me to films, I went my sister would and and then we video rental place opened up close enough for me to skateboard to and i joined and would come home with 10 movies and and go watch the lake when i was a kid and it was it was a lot of people have heard this whether they've listened to my podcast or or just me in general but close encounters was when i was eight in the theater was what all of a sudden visually i was like someone made that for me to watch and i want to do that somehow it wasn't About yeah. being the kid being abducted, it wasn't. There was just, and I recently watched it a few years ago. They re-released it at the dome, and it, yeah. it's still a brilliant film. It's still, it's a, amazing a visually, story, character. It's just if you haven't seen that, it's one of Spielberg's best films, it, hands down.
1: Yeah, I agree. He it, made it agree. at such
0: a young age, and it's just when you realize that, you are just like it. It just brings yeah. more awe to me, yeah. but. So that's like the genesis of me wanting to tell stories, and I started writing from a very early age. Started reading plays and all of that stuff. So when I moved to LA in in the nineties, I didn't go to film school. So my plan was write scripts and then try to become a director after selling scripts because I'd seen like I'd read about that journey for a writer. Yeah, And I came actually yeah. with two TV scripts. I came with a Northern Exposure and an X-Files cool. that I'd written. Cool. Yeah.
1: That's so <laughs>
0: Completely diametrically opposed shows, but that's where Chris's brain goes. And, and yeah. then I ended up on the journey I'm on. It was just wasn't easy for me to get you know my script scene to get a rep. or And then I got injured. My knee got injured on a Hallmark movie, which is really funny if you've read my script. Because it was a Hallmark yeah. Christmas movie where my knee got hurt. Yeah, yeah, and then I ended up yeah. in Unscripted, which is no negative. I have learned so much more about storytelling, about connecting emotionally with people, about a lot of what you have me on set. It comes from years of that. I've written with footage because in unscripted and in documentary, you're writing with the footage that the director and the DP come home with, or that the producer comes home with the interviews. So it's all made me a much better storyteller. Around the time my mom passed away, which was in 2013, Right after that I also had there was a I had a severe deficiency in vitamin D and mm-hmm. too much iron. So it like all of a sudden I was depressed. Mm-hmm. I was which I've you've met me. I'm pretty, I'm a pretty yeah, happy, happy, pretty, pretty <laughs> positive yeah. person, optimistic is just it's in my nature. So I was like, what's going on? Yeah. And then those tests came back because I, I was afraid. My mom speaking of vulnerability, my my mom was yeah. clinically depressed for much of her later life when I was in high school, as a matter of fact, yeah. my last year of high school, it was like having a four year old at home. Cause they hadn't figured out what was going on with her. And it was hormonally, it was a hormonal one yeah. which they finally figured out. But anyway, that's an up and down thing. Right. So that's, I was, when that happened yeah. to me, I was like, is it genetic? Am I getting something like, like I, I started to, Thought yeah, spending. I was in my late forties. And so when I found out it was just vitamin D, which is not just, but it was so low that the dermatologist was like, I've never seen this. I've never seen someone so low that they are exhibiting depression. And he gave me these horse pills. It's, you have to, They're so high. It's such a high concentration of vitamin D that, that it's prescribed. You can't just buy it. And so it yeah. got me back up and okay. back, and I started feeling myself. But at that point I was like, what am I doing? Because <laughs> I yeah. enjoy what I'm doing, but it's yeah. not what I moved here yeah. to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of sat with myself and I said, how do I achieve becoming a director? And I've always mm-hmm. loved writer directors. Mm-hmm. I've always loved the Wes Anderson's and the Coen brothers and, yeah. and those stories. And like the Artur.
1: Yeah. No, totally.
0: So I told myself, okay, then you can only take a certain level of job because you've met me. I could run. I could yeah. show run if I wanted in unscripted. Yeah. I choose not. To. Yeah. I do not want to do that. Not in a million years. Yeah. Network. No. Right. I love coming home with something for a showrunner and going here, you can edit this show because I don't just produce. I look at it from the, both the post and the directing standpoint too.
1: Yeah. And you're a storyteller. Yeah.
0: So I told myself just take any, don't take anything higher than senior supervising producer on a show. So you can pay your rent. Yeah. And then I looked at it very strategically. I was like, I need to make shorts first, which I did. And then at a certain point it was actually Bill, our friend, Bill, who turned to me and goes, you know, you need to make a film now. <laughs> like you write a script. Like I was at that point, like I'd done my short stuff and I'm like, Oh, you're right. He's like, it's time. Yeah. I was like, Oh, you're right. That is the, the next step. And so, I was trying to figure out what to write and it was actually him who I came into his office at some point and I go, uh, he said something. I can't remember what he asked me. And I said, no, I'm done. I'm I don't need a relationship. I'm just, I'm done. I'm actually really happy where I'm at. And it was almost an unconscious thing for myself that I had finally come to that point. And that was important because I had driven myself to, not being optimistic and not happy trying to fit into that box at some point in my 30s, which is that box that everyone thinks everyone should be in a relationship, especially for women. And that if we like being single, is there something wrong with us? But so Bill laughed and he goes, that's a funny movie. And I go, what are you talking about? He goes, a bunch of friends trying to set up their friend who's decided they want to be single. That was the first thing that came out. And I was like, you know what? You're right. That is funny. But I need to think about it. And of course, every couple months, he would be like, we're, you know.
1: What are you doing? But
0: I, my writing process yeah. is, and I think you, I think I talked about this with Jack, is I think about things and I think about things and I think about things. And eventually there's a moment at which I'm like, yeah. oh, that clicks. And then my writing process for the first draft is usually pretty fast. That first draft of the long girl was oh, cool. a month. Were, yeah, so you,
1: you just, just need, need soak to it soak, it, soak in. it in. And, but and also, my father
0: passed away between Bill saying that and me writing it. And I love my parents. And I don't say that for anyone to feel sorry for me. And that was in 2018. It, what it was, it it informed how I wrote this story because consciously or subconsciously, we all feel pressure from our parents to be in those relationships and to, whether parents are cognizant of it or not. And if your child doesn't want that, there's conflict there. There's devaluing yourself for not fitting into those boxes that your family or society wants you to fit into. And it becomes toxic for every relationship that person has. Either they stay in a relationship they shouldn't be in because they think being single is scarier. You know, there's, there's a whole myriad of things, but so that's when I sat down. And then when I realized that I could address that, and then I was like, why don't I take the rom-com and turn it on its head? And that's a challenge as a writer and a storyteller too. Right. Right. Because it hasn't really been done. It's been done very not often and not in this way. Like Private Benjamin, which I'm I'm assuming Nancy Myers had some hand in because she's credited as one of the writers. Most of them are male, but she was in there. She leaves the man at the altar, but it's because he's an asshole and he cheated on her. I didn't want that. I wanted this to be her decision. So anyway, that's how. No,
1: it's good, and I think the best films come from a a place – deeply within ourselves it's I think all the films that I've really come to love um, working on are ones that had a deep personal relationship with the director and the writer and yeah. the people involved so it's I think you're bound to make something good when it comes from a place I yeah. you. it's pretty cool and it's so different and it, it is it is that it's just it's not just your normal rom-com that has been written a billion times it's, yeah is it okay to be single <laughs> yeah can you be happy I think it's such interesting themes to explore things that I'm always thinking about you know it's it's like we have this general tendency to be like got to be in a relationship that's the key to happiness and and then sometimes when i'm on trips alone i'm like oh maybe it's different here so it's it's interesting yeah
0: i mean and my goal was all this and I, and hopefully I'll, I'll achieve that i i think i've achieved it in the script now i need to achieve it visually up there is that you as an audience member are cheering for her to say no and yeah that's like The it'll hopefully surprise the audience member when they see that, you know, when they see themselves doing that. Yeah. Wait a minute. I'm not supposed to be cheering that, but I am because that's who she is.
1: Yeah. And it's so different than the normal you're used to cheering for when they meet at the airport and he rushes and tells her not to go on the flight. But maybe in this story, it's They actually don't chase. Yeah. It's cool.
0: So, uh, that's, that's Bobby coming in on the fly here. Some attention. Come here. Me.
1: Oh, so cute.
0: So here's the I call BS. It's a new thing. And you're only the second person. And okay. so I'm gonna say a word. I'm gonna say something. It's not one word. I've changed it in the conversation yeah. because you were talking about yeah. single camera versus multiple camera. And yeah. I was very much considering shooting two camera because it's a comedy. And yeah. I do yeah. think
1: I think that's a that reason there's a reason, a, there's a reason so. for
0: reaction shots to be gotten. With totally. the immediacy, but yeah. I, I want to say I call BS on two camera coverage. You tell me what yeah. your, your take is on it. You can start with I call BS. So that I, I have call that, BS. You know.
1: I call BS on two camera coverage. No, I don't know if I do though. I okay. think I, as a DP, I obviously my priorities are in like visuals, but I do have to step back from that sometimes, and I have to put my priorities in what's going to make the best film. Although, two like you're never it, make two camera coverage. Absolutely impossible to make it look as good as one camera coverage. That's, I can say with certainty, because you can light in a way that's much more dynamic when on a very technical level where you don't have to worry about another cross coverage angle. I can put the lights here. Now, all of a sudden, if I bring two cameras in, I have to put the lights above or I have to hide them somewhere else. It's much more challenging. But as a DPI, if I'm going to say, okay, there's comedy in this and these two actors are going to riff on each other and we want to get those natural reactions, then ultimately I'm going to say, yeah, if I trust this director, then I'm going to say, yeah, let's do two cameras. Now, if if it's two cameras for a purely uh, economic reason, bullshit, screw that. But if there's a reason behind it, that's going to help the story, then, then go for it. You know? Cool.
0: No, that was, I was just wondering that. Cause somebody, yeah. the editor I um, interviewed, Susan Lindenberg, she was like, we, it's, we got into that discussion a little bit because um she talked about that's an interesting take to get the reactions but you can always get that in a single camera what you can't get with the do- the the two cameras is she was up from what i understand is the lighting and you just
1: answered it <laughs> so the lighting these are you'll the never get things
0: i have to think about right it's
1: like a yeah it's a dp's nightmare to like specifically cross coverage is very difficult two camera on one side of the line where you're both filming the same character not so challenging um, but cross-coverage is really hard. I mean, it's really I think hard. my
0: inclination also comes from years of doing unscripted where we do – and, and just, I've got eight cameras, which yeah. is whatever. Right? But I'm talking like yeah. even in some of the doc stuff, I've had been able to have two camera so that we can get in doc sense the real reaction someone's getting from whatever is really going on. Yeah. And those are priceless in the edit room. Reaction shots, yeah. that, this decision yeah. was coming to me more from – I know the value of a very natural reaction shot that you can't
1: get. No, totally. You
0: can't duplicate with single camera. But now I'm like, I, 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 after having that conversation in yours, I do wonder, I'm like, am I thinking of a hybrid thing where I know there's certain things I need and then there's other ones where we can
1: shape. I don't know. That's my feeling with it. Like with a lot of, when I do have discussions with directors about certain scenes that, maybe it's a really vulnerable scene and we we don't want to do it a ton of times I say okay let's have our two cameras in our package and we can be mature and be like you know what this scene is not about the reaction shots it's more about making this beautiful and poetic and we'll just do single camera mm-hmm. today but we have that second camera in our back pocket on Delhi crime I always we had two cameras in and it's also useful on a technical level where you can have one camera that's your handheld camera and one camera that's built out on a gimbal or a camera or your jib. So it makes that much quicker where you're doing those transitions. But then when you need it, you need to do two camera coverage, you can do it. So I think having a second body is, is definitely important, but just having the maturity and the confidence and being able to talk to a producer in a very logical way and say, hey, I know we have two cameras. I'm not going to use it right now. I know that doesn't make you happy on a budget level, but here's why we're doing this and helping them to understand that. Cause as a producer, I get it. Like, you got two cameras. Yeah. Why are you using I mean, both?
0: do you think there's some value uh, yeah. to both cameras in you, cause you've read the script? There's a few scenes where it's over seven characters on a couch kind of thing. Like yeah. I was thinking yeah. it would be helpful to have a master wide and something else going on before we go in.
1: Yeah. I, I think, what i will say yeah. is because, like just as me as a dp on a very technical level like i i really mm-hmm. try not to do wides and close ups at the same time and that's because of the proximity issue that i have because if i'm going to do a wide and then i'm going to do a close up at the same time that means my close up has to be shot on an 85 or 100 oh uh, okay i got and it yeah you have this distanced telephoto feel which for me I struggle with that. Some people love telephoto. And a lot of films look great with telephoto lenses. There's been beautiful film shot that way. But I would say, okay, why don't I do a wide and and Mm -hmm. a four shot or a three shot, which I can get away with. And then for all the close-up coverage, if you're doing two cameras, you're getting two close-ups at the same time where you can actually put both those lenses on a 35 or a 24 and, and be close.
0: Awesome. Do you have anything that you want to get the word out about?
1: Yeah, I've been working, you know, nonstop since the pandemic. And it's right now it's overwhelming in that like everything is finishing at the same time. And I've been going through color, like create just nonstop color sessions. So yeah, I've got some fun things. I've gone in the night in the theaters right now. And then my, my series that's really near and dear to my heart that I spent almost three years of my life making called Delhi Crime which we shot in India and it's coming out on Netflix in August Got that. And and yeah, we'll see what happens. Me and Lance have a lot of stuff up our sleeves. So it's coming up that way, but yeah, it's an ex- exciting time. Well,
0: that's awesome, David. And thank you so much for coming on this podcast. This has been awesome. Yeah,
1: I know. It's just nice to talk to you again, honestly. it's uh, it's, it's been too great long to
0: talk to you and to um, get a little deeper into some of the, yeah, totally. the movie talk. I think
1: totally. Well, thank you.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to Blissful Spinster. If any of these conversations are resonating with you, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find Blissful Spinster on Instagram and Twitter and through our website, blissfulspinster.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me on this journey. And until next week, go find your happy.